Blog Talk Radio. It's the Speedway Show, an idea exchange empowering you to live well, live fully, and love deeply. And now, here's our host, Speedway Pierce. of you wherever in the world you are. Folks in New Zealand, if you are in Zimbabwe, if you're in the United Kingdom, and of course right here in the United States, welcome to the Speedway Show, an idea exchange empowering us to live well, live fully, and love deeply by improving the quality of our personal, professional, and spiritual relationships. If you haven't already, Visit the website at thespeedwayshow.com and join all the people who have posted their comments and tell us what you think of the show. Visit the Facebook fan page, facebook.com slash thespeedwayshow, to participate in more discussions and sound off. Or you can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash, yes, you guessed it, thespeedwayshow. During the show, you can also Skype in or call in at 877 877- Five six zero six zero three three, or if you do not have access to toll free numbers, you can call seven six zero six eight three two six one six just to listen to the show. Our topic today is secrets to success: the definitive guide, career development guide for new and first generation professionals. Are you a young or first-generational profession in business, law, medicine, government, nonprofit, science, or technology? Are you searching for personal, professional, and financial success without sacrificing the things that you care about? Maybe you got your degree, found a job making good money, but still find yourself struggling to manage your career and your finances. Worse yet, you're finding it hard to make time for family, friends, and other interests outside of work. Gee, imagine that. You want to change things, but you don't know how since no one in your family, and likely none of your friends, have been here or done this before. Things may seem hopeless. You may want to quit and do something else. This isn't what you signed up for, right? I remember feeling that way when I started my career. This was not the dream that was promised. Well, don't lose hope because today we have help. You can have personal, professional, and financial success without sacrificing who you are and what you care about. To shed light on these perplexing issues is my guest speaker, attorney and author, Al Coleman, Jr. Al has mentored a multitude of exceptional emerging leaders in business, law, government, the arts, and sciences throughout the country, and he enjoys serving others when he can. When he is not sharing the secrets to success, Al can be found teaching law or practicing law as a director and senior corporate counsel at a leading U.S. tax and business consulting firm. He spends his days advising managing or supporting a full range of business and legal issues, including complex commercial transactions and corporate strategy, advertising and marketing review and approval, intellectual property development and portfolio management, mergers, acquisitions, and resolution of complex commercial disputes. As you can see, Al is one busy guy. Although he's extremely proud of the numerous awards and honors he has received, I was interested to note that on his website, Al says he is most proud of being married to his lovely wife and being a father to their three beautiful children. Way to go with those relationships, Al. Away from the office, Al enjoys traveling, cooking, golfing, and catching up with friends and family around the Twin Cities area. If you haven't already, you can pick up a copy of Al's book through the link that uh, for this episode at thespeedwayshow.com, 
or you can get it from Al's website directly at www.alcolemanjr.com. That's A-L-C-O-L-E-M-A-N-J-R.com. Al, welcome to the Speedway Show. Thanks for having me, Speedway. It's a pleasure to speak with you. One of the things that makes this show so different from other relationship discussions is our focus on spirituality and our reliance on the life manual as a guidepost to living fully and increasing the success of our relationships. Now, for those of you who are catching the show for the first time, you might be wondering, what is a life manual? It is the manual that comes with your body, mind, and spirit. Depending on your personal persuasion and preference, you may use, for example, the Hebrew Bible, the Bhagavad Gita, the Quran, the Christian Bible, or some other holy writing that speaks to you. While expressed in different ways, the underlying truths about living right and living a godly life tend to be the same. So, Al, I'm going to ask you the question I ask all of my guests. Do you happen to use a life manual? Yes, I do, Speedway. Uh, as a member of the Christian faith, uh, I find myself turning to the Bible as a guidepost for how to live fully and have a successful relationships. Oh, excellent. So the first thing that I would ask you today is share with us what prompted you to write the book. Well, I had two prompts. I guess the first uh, most pressing prompt was uh, the fact that I have approximately 14 legal interns that I've managed over the last three years, and they all tend to have the same questions that I think um, in your introduction many of us have struggled with, you know, how how to successfully manage their careers, how to successfully manage their finances, and how to find work-life balance. Um, and again, I those themes and questions continuously came up in our discussion. So, you know, I thought it would be nice to have, uh, you know, a single volume that, you know, a young person could turn to to help them address some of those questions. Um, my secondary prompt, which, you know, put computer in hand or pen in hand, depending on what day it was, was <laughs> unfortunately uh, the loss of my father. Um, he was a fairly instrumental figure in my life. Uh, you know, uh, he, he did many wonderful things. And his passing really made me focus on how I could make the world a better place. So those two uh, prompts really helped me to uh, create the book uh, that you've read and uh, we're speaking about today. Well, I am so sorry to hear about the passing of your dad. Um, how long ago was that? It was approximately two years ago. We're coming up on the two-year anniversary uh, in a, a week or so here. Well, you know, I lost my dad three years ago to a heart attack. And I have to say that um, one of the things that I learned from that experience is that there is nothing that compares to the loss of a parent. And, you know, the you can't really grasp or understand it unless you've been through it. And even then, what you realize is, depending on the relationship, because even, you know, I have one sister, and even between the two of us, the grieving process was different, and we're both sisters and it's our father, because with yeah. each of us, he had a different relationship. And so the yeah. different, there was a different sort of process. And so that's something that I didn't realize, because even if you've got, you know, five siblings, you mourn differently. So there's an element that you have in common that you understand, but there's also something very personal about the process of grieving that loss. I'm sorry to hear about your dad. Well, and I can you. certainly say I understand. Thank you. So now uh, as we move along back to our topic at hand, in your own experience and as you have mentored, what is it that is so different about being a first-generation professional that makes this experience uniquely challenging? Well, I think, you know, the the fact that these young men and women uh, are the first, by definition, uh, to travel down this path uh, makes their experience unique 
um, and uniquely challenging. Uh, being the first means that they don't have guidance uh, in certain areas, um, whether it be academic or even the preparatory phase, you know, getting to college um, or getting that first professional job. Uh, they typically lack certain resources, again, whether it be financial resources or just, um, you know, interpersonal uh, resources, you know, having a network that can help them and shape them and mold them and guide them on this path. You know, in writing the book, it helped me to explore some of those challenges that tend to be unique specifically to the first-generation professional. Now, the reason you were able to write so authoritatively about this topic is because you are a first-generation professional. Is that true? Yeah. Yes, that's true. Now, my definition... Uh, is a bit broader. Um, my father actually was a professional. My mother is a professional. Uh, but we immigrated to the United States. So for me, uh, oh, where did you I, come from? Liberia, Monrovia, Liberia. So, I didn't you know, know that. Yes, yes, West Africa. Um, mm-hmm. So the experience for me was really the fact that no one in my family, in my immediate family, had attended undergraduate institutions in the United States. So, again, I could certainly relate to uh, not knowing who to turn to or not having a resource to turn to in my family for simple things like filling out the financial aid applications or doing college tours. You know, these were things that were foreign uh, to my household simply because no one had, had been there or done that. Well, now, you know what I find is I find that people who are not first-generation professionals have a tendency to take for granted what they already know and things that you are mentioning, like filling out financial aid forms and so on, seem like really basic second-nature stuff because, of course, they've got mom and dad who's saying, oh, go ahead, Um, here's what you do. And I found, you know, you might have found this in law school, but I found, too, that when I got to law school, um, I was the first lawyer in my immediate family. Yeah. And the kids who walked in with uh, the experience of having gone to Dad's law office for yeah. five, they knew probably half of the stuff we studied the first year offhand. Yeah. Because they they'd listened to it and they'd been exposed to it for years. And there wasn't a recognition that, Everybody else didn't know that. Yeah. And so, you know, when you talk about the unique challenge, I think it's interesting because the people who feel it the most are those of us who did not have um, somebody in our family that we grew up listening to, watching, and who forced us to learn our profession. Because my dad was a, um, well, my dad was an educator by profession, and he had, you know, four degrees, so certainly a professional. He was in the diplomatic corps. But even then, he's in Zimbabwe, I'm in the U.S., and even though he was educated here, not having him here um, and not having my mom here, who was also educated here but lived in Zimbabwe, also made a difference because there was a lot that I had to figure out for myself. And it's a difficult task, which takes me to my next burning question, which is how did you crack the code in your own career in order even to get to this point where you are able to write a book and, and, and make it hopefully easier for those coming behind you? How well, did you do that? I, I think it, it starts with acknowledging that you don't have all the answers, you know, to crack the code. So you start to rely on those that do, you know, and you rely on their wisdom. Um, I love the point you made earlier about, you know, not having, you know, the opportunity to discuss certain professional issues, you know, what I call, again, that preparatory phase, you know, the dinner table Mm -hmm. conversations. Um, Because you know, and for me, I knew that I I lacked those experiences, you know, I sought them in other areas and at later stages in life. And that's really what helped to get me over the, you know, the quote-unquote hump, you know, to really start to crack the code and start to understand what was required to be a successful professional. One of the things, one of the first things that you do in your book, which I thought was 
exactly appropriate given the title of the book, is you discuss the definition of success. How do you define success? Well, I start with, you know, the base of, you know, knowledge, you know, wisdom and health. You know, many people I think in today's society wouldn't tend to gravitate to those traits as being what are critical for success. And typically see you know, traits thrown out, you know, I wanna have, you know, money, you know, so wealth, you know, power, fame. But, you know, quite frankly, I think those are evidences of your success or proof of your success, but not success in and of itself. Because typically what people find is that, you know, when they, you know, face some adversity or they get knocked down when they're no longer successful um, and no longer have the wealth or the power or the fame, something at their core within their essence of their being needs to exist to help them to get back on that successful path. And, you know, what I've observed in my own life and, you know, observing other successful individuals, it's typically, you know, knowledge, wisdom, and health that allows you not only to gain success, but if for whatever reason you lose it, you can acquire it again relatively um, easily if you have, you know, knowledge, wisdom, and health. Now, on September 4th, we spoke to Keith White, who is the CEO of uh, Cub Foods, and he told us that good is not enough, which happens to be the title of his book. When you and I were talking offline, Al, you mentioned that there is a relationship between these two books. Tell us about that. Well, Good is Not Enough is a fantastic, fantastic work, um, I fully recommend that anyone listening, if they didn't catch the September 4th show, that they go back, listen to Keith, uh, and pick up his book if they can. Uh, the themes in both of our books, you know, we tend to both touch on accountability, continuous improvement, and the importance of mentoring. I think the audience, you know, is slightly different. You know, my book tends to be a, a primer or a gateway. You know, it gives you um, the elementary foundation for professional career development and success uh, in the future. But I think, you know, there there's still a lot of overlap, positive overlap, um, even though good is not enough, in my opinion, tends to uh, benefit those who have a little more experience. Um, they've kind of been there, done that, and they're now ready to take their career to the next level. Um but I, I certainly see a relationship between the two books. You know, you may start with my book and then gravitate towards Keith's book. All in all, I think you need to hear both of the messages contained in those works because they they, they tend to help solidify and substantiate uh, that success is learned, success is a process that you can achieve, and that you need to be accountable for your success in life. Well, I absolutely agree with that assessment because um, I, I think you, you hit the nail right on the head. Yours would be for the budding, um, maybe even if I were to put a year on it, I would say the, the issues that uh, young professionals struggle with probably are going to be hit head-on within the first five years of their career. Yeah. And that's exactly where I think, you know, Secrets to Success really comes to the table with some answers and then when you have that professional who maybe has been in their career, maybe, you know, now you're going on seven years, ten years, yeah. and your maybe your career has stalled, can't quite figure out why you're not on the fast track or yeah. why you can't get from, you know, director to C-suite, yeah. then this is sort of the next level that you would need Keith's book for to, to help you identify perhaps yeah. some of the things that are holding you back that you haven't even thought about or considered. Absolutely. So this takes us to an underlying uh, issue that we don't necessarily address head-on in this show, but that is a an absolute requirement for success, and that is persistence. So what I chose today was a, a clip from... Um, a, a an audio book called Think and Grow Rich, 
And this particular one talks about persistence. Take a listen. If you wish evidence of the power of faith, study the achievements of men and women who have employed it. At the head of the list comes the Nazarene. The basis of Christianity is faith, no matter how many people may have perverted or misinterpreted the meaning of this great force. The sum and substance of the teachings and the achievements of Christ, which may have been interpreted as miracles, were nothing more nor less than faith. If there are any such phenomena as miracles, they are produced only through the state of mind known as faith. Consider Mahatma Gandhi of India, one of the most astounding examples of the possibilities of faith. Gandhi wielded more potential power than any man living in his time, and he had this power despite the fact that he had none of the orthodox tools of power, such as money, battleships, soldiers, and materials of warfare. Gandhi had no money, no home. He did not own a suit of clothes, but he did have power. How did he come by that power? He created it out of his understanding of the principle of faith and through his ability to transplant that faith into the minds of 200 million people. Well, there we have it, and um, this was interesting. The reason I chose this was, interestingly enough, given our focus on, on the life manual, um, Think and Grow Rich is, is actually a secular uh, book that talks about the qualities that you must possess in order to be successful. And, you know, this discussion talks about, you know, it talks about it in the context of faith, but actually what the author points out is he's not talking about religious faith. He is actually talking about the conviction that if you are persistent in the things that you do, that you're going to be successful because if you don't believe that you are going to be successful, then you're not. Al, what do you think of that? Well, I, I, I fully subscribe uh, to that line of thinking. Uh, I can't recall, and I have a fairly large library of business books, I can't recall ever reading one uh, that didn't stress the importance of persistence or you know, faith um, whether you're viewing it in the spiritual context or the secular context, you know the idea that you have to have the mindset that you will overcome any and all adversity uh, before it arises, because that's typically where um, you win those battles. Um, it's not when the adversity comes; it's before it comes. Having a plan and knowing uh, that you're going to overcome, and then you start to build that fortitude. To persist when you're faced with those challenges and the challenges. So, to the listener out there who might be thinking, "Well, I went to college, I got a job, or I already have a pretty good salary," tell us why that is not enough. Well, going to college is fantastic. We're certainly not going to debate. Uh, the value. I think study after study, report after report have shown that it's very important to go to school. Um, and as a result, when you're done with you know, your post-secondary education, you hope to make good money. Um, the, what I think most professionals find is that just you know, having the degree on the wall and you know, having a bank account every two weeks that you know, has a nice sum going into it isn't sufficient to sustain uh, your your sense of satisfaction, your sense of worth, and more importantly, to avoid being replaced. Uh, so I think it's critical for most young professionals to understand that you really want to move towards management and leadership roles, and you really want to be seen as someone who's creating value within your organization instead of just serving those that create value. So it, what I try to touch on in the book is how do you go from, you know, just an entry-level employee, you know, you just, you're fresh out of school or maybe you've spent a year or two, um, to someone who's really taking on more of a management and leadership role, even if your title doesn't reflect that. Okay. And now you also talk about the importance of having the proper mindset, which is what we just touched on here. Yeah. Um, 
and you know in the context of the book why 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 is that so significant again the the positive attitude uh, we all know that we're going to face challenges day in and day out they may be on a very minor level um you know something stopped you from getting out the door on time and getting into the office as soon as you'd like, or you have a very daunting project, something you've never faced before, or it may be the loss of a parent, as we touched on earlier in the show. The fact of the matter is we're going to have these challenges, but how do we overcome them? It it starts with a positive attitude, the right mindset that you will overcome adversity no matter what form or shape it comes in. Uh, you may not know how you'll overcome it. You may not know how long that adversity will last. But you just know that if you persist, if you remain patient, um, and you continue to plug away and chip away at it, that you'll overcome. And I think it's so important because most, I, I would subscribe, it's probably you know 70 80% range of those that don't accomplish their goals. It's because of the lack of a positive mindset. They, quite frankly, just give up and quit before they, you know, see see the end result uh, that they desire. Well, and you know that's an interesting question because if if you get to the point where you are giving up, part of I would guess the logic, and certainly when I have heard um, my colleagues, my coworkers, people that I even in law school uh, was was hanging around who wanted to quit. They they sounded like they had you know really good reasons right like yeah. I've been trying to do this and I just haven't been successful it, this is just not working and there's no point in beating my head against the wall I need to go try something else and so you know in the event that we have listeners who might be at that point and who are feeling like yeah but you don't know what I've been going through for the past year yeah. um, how how do you overcome first of all how do you even know that I can push through this and 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 what is it that it takes to actually just keep going even when you're kind of feeling like boy you know I'm not sure that this is this is going to be working for me well let's make sure we're clear to the listener um it's certainly okay if you change your focus or change your scope we're not suggesting that you're a quitter if mm-hmm. the end result looks a bit different than what you planned uh, at the start of your journey. That's okay. But a wholesale uh, giving up on your dreams, um, uh, to use a more concrete example, if when I started off uh, my undergraduate experience, I thought I would be a journalist. You know, I thought, you know, this is what I want to do. This is the area I'll go into. Well, I think within a year, maybe a year and a half, I transitioned into economics, and then maybe six months after that, I landed on finance. Uh, does that mean I quit journalism? No. You know, I changed. I adapt. Uh, you know, I adapted to my situation and my likes and desires. That's okay. If I took the path um, and said, well, because I, I don't enjoy my journalism classes, therefore I'm going to drop out of school, that you know, that's a problem because you you may not well you will not get to the end of the journey you know whatever that journey entails for you if you just you know quit altogether um i think something that helps the listener if they're feeling like things are really tough uh you know they they have every right to quit i think they should start to look around them and try to find examples of individuals who have persevered um, and I think one trait they'll find fairly quickly in those individuals is that accountability that we talked about, whether in my book or Keith's book or countless others, at some point we have to take a bit of ownership and say, okay, am I quitting really because the circumstance is insurmountable or am I quitting or giving up because I'm just getting tired? Because, again, you will be faced with another challenge you know, months from now, years from now, that will be just as challenging, if not more. And you need to build the character that sticks through it and fights through it to ensure that you reach the end. 
because it's all about the end result. It's where where you're going on this journey, not the journey itself. Well, and you know, it's a funny thing because that starts early. Um, I have a nine-year-old, and she has been having challenges with uh, one of her uh, schoolmates. And her solution was, well, I I think I need to go find more friends, which I told her wasn't such a hot idea since they share mutual friends. And to your point, Al, um, there were other kids in her school who have since, you know, sometimes when kids have those kinds of issues, they leave and they transfer, their parents transfer them to another school. So she had a friend last year who left because of those kinds of things, and I explained to her that, you know, you will always have challenges. There will always be people that you find difficult to get along with, and so you have to stand, and you have to stand now and learn how to get along with them. And I I find that, you know, as as I'm raising my daughters and teaching them this stuff, I am rather astounded at how many forms that which you're talking about takes and how early because we assume that you know we're talking about it in the context of the workplace but actually it happens in the context of life you know if you are if you master the practices of not running away and even if you have to adjust your plan and what you're doing and how you're doing it um i find that it it's applicable in all kinds of ways if you found that to be true also yeah uh, I, I love the phrase you just used, you know, mastering the trait of not running away. If that's not persistence, I don't know what else is. I mean, that there are so many things. Learning to play an instrument, you know, you, there, you're trying to find work-life balance. You're searching for hobbies. You talk about relationships. Um, it, there's just so many facets of life. Uh, that mastering that practice of not running away will help you to be a better person and, again, arrive help you to arrive at the end result that you desire, whether it's you know a successful relationship with individuals outside of the workplace, um, mastering a hobby that gives you joy and maybe helps you in terms of your mental state of mind and mental health. Um, there, it's just it's invaluable. That leads us then to the conversation uh, with the future you that you talk about in your book. Yeah. Uh, who is the future you? Talk to us about that. Well, the future you is simply put, someone you aspire to be like. Da 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 da. In the future. <laughs> yeah. This is you know we we like to use the term you know a mentor. Um, and even that may not define all that that person is to you, but it, it it's someone that you know. So, you know, it's not, in my case, you know, Michael Jordan, someone that I may not meet in my lifetime, but who I guess, you know, for a long period of time in my life I aspire to be like. It, it's someone that I know, that I interact with regularly, and that, you know, I, I appreciate the way they carry themselves. Um, I love what they've been able to accomplish, uh, and, you know, I want to model my life after that person. That's who I see myself like in the future. Are you saying that you – okay, I think I missed something. So you said you aspired to be like Michael Jordan. Was that somebody <laughs> yeah. you interacted with and aspired to be like because you, you, you regularly were in contact with him? No, 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 no. I, oh, I said okay. that's someone I who I would not meet. Yes, yes. So the oh, key, you would not, Okay. Yeah, the key is you have to meet, you have to interact with the person because I think what most people tend to focus on are individuals that they more than likely will not meet. Um, so I wanted to make sure it was clear to the reader that this has to be someone you interact with because of the next step in that relationship, which is getting their knowledge um, imparted into your life so that you can, again, get to where they are. Aha. And to that end, you suggest finding a mentor. Why is this so important? Well, your mentor is really your blueprint, you know. They've they've cracked the code so to speak. You know, they've been there, you know, been where you want to go. They've seen what you want to see. 
So there's no better person to talk to. You know, that's why I call this person your future self. I mean, if you want to know how to get to the success in your life that is 5, 10, 15 years down the road, well, who better to talk to than someone who has achieved that success uh, to walk you through the do's and the don'ts, you know, the traps and the pitfalls. Uh, they're, they're a fantastic resource to help you avoid or at least properly manage the challenges that you'll face that could derail you on that path to success. One of the challenges that I found in looking for a mentor, and you, I don't know if this was a challenge for you too, but you know, mentors, the kind of person that I would want to have as a mentor tends to be a really busy individual. So yeah. they've got their own life, they've got their own, you know, we're all trying to, to figure out this work-life balance thing, and they've got kids, and they've got, you know, all sorts of other obligations, and so it was, it was, I had to really try and figure out how do you get through all of that busyness in order to even get this person interested in being a mentor, because chances are I might not be the first person that has come to them and said, hey, will you be my mentor? And they might have said yes the first, the second, the third time. And um, so then it becomes a challenge because it's not just about walking up to somebody and saying, hey, I really admire you. Would you like to be my mentor? Yeah. So um, does the mentor-mentee relationship provide only a one-way benefit for the mentee at the mentor's expense? Or is there some value that the mentee ought to be prepared to bring to the table to make it useful for the mentor? Great question. I want to step back just briefly because there's there's a gem you left for your listeners. I mean, finding a mentor, a lot of people say, well, how do I go about finding a mentor? And I, mm-hmm. I would suggest that they've already found one. You know, the individual that you pointed out that you may aspire to be like, you know that you want that person to mentor you. The real trick is how do you get that person to engage? You know you know you want them to mentor you, but how do you request that relationship or how do you begin to develop it uh, without intruding you know, and making them feel like this is another chore in their busy life? Um, you know, so I, what I tend to suggest is that individuals, quote, unquote, mentor up. You know, you you don't have to make this a formal process. You can be mentored on an elevator ride. You can be mentored at the copy machine. You can be mentored over lunch, coffee. You know, the idea is find uh, situations where you can ask questions that will give you insight into how that person got to where they are. Because I think the, the worst thing you can do is to flat-out ask, will you be my mentor? I mean, it, it's such a rigid way of, starting the relationship, it may scare the person off. So I think the more natural, the more organic approach is to just find yourself in that person's presence in their company and ask questions when appropriate that help you to start gaining insights into how they've achieved what they've achieved. Now for the mentor, you know, what they're getting out of the relationship with a mentee, you know, you can start with the the most obvious Benefit. I mean, it, it, it's something that keeps them current and relevant in terms of trends. I mean, generally, the mentor-mentee relationship involves a bit of a, a gap, whether it's in age or experience. So for a mentor, the idea that they can tap uh, the knowledge and the wisdom of this younger or less experienced individual to learn what's happening now, what's going on in the field. I think most savvy mentors uh, recognize that right away. Um, the other benefit for the mentors, this is a, a, a great opportunity for them to give back. Surprise, surprise, most mentors are very generous with their time and they're very giving individuals. So they, they enjoy this. Even with their busy and hectic schedule, this is a feel-good moment or feel-good opportunity for them because while you as the mentee are looking at the mentor as your future self, they're looking at you and reminiscing about where they once were. 
So for them, it's it's it, it's 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 uh, very beneficial. It's something that allows them to give back and feel good about what they've accomplished and what they'll hopefully help someone else accomplish. You know, achieve some success. Okay. Well, that's a helpful thing because you know when I think about mentorship. Um, historically, I'm thinking, you know, we're going to sit down like this, and I'm going to interview you, and I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions. But actually what you're saying is it can be, it's almost like an incidental mentorship where I, I, you know, I run into you, and to the extent that I have some burning question, we just ask in passing, and maybe over the course of time it's just a series of interactions and encounters that could be pretty brief, actually. Yeah, yeah. And I... You know, quite honestly, those incidental uh, interactions, they tend to build over time, just naturally, like any relationship, uh, Mm -hmm. to the point where you will have, you know, uh, a longer opportunity to sit and chat and have a more detailed discussion. Or, you know, I remember one mentor relationship of mine where it started with a few professional, you know, we met in professional settings at groups and association meetings, over time, this individual and I uh, developed a relationship where uh, we went to lunch, and you know, because of those lunches, uh, at one of those lunches, I was able to get direct feedback on my resume. So it was a detailed review, um, you know, with the mentor marking it up. And uh, the the interesting uh, tidbit of information here is, I can assure you, at the time when this individual was reviewing my resume and walking me through, you know, uh, appropriate things to include and some things to, you know, uh, take off of the resume, he probably didn't see himself as a mentor. He probably just viewed it as this is a lunch that I'm having with, you know, a young man who's a friend of mine uh, and I'm helping him out with his resume. But in my mind, this was valuable feedback. This was valuable mentoring you know, getting this insight from such a seasoned individual, seasoned professional, uh, that, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't take the opportunity lightly. Wow. Well, now let's talk about the principles that you refer to in your book. You break down three principles for us. And those three principles are education, professional, and financial now, obviously, we cannot cover them all on this show in any great detail, but what I would like to do is, is just give the the listeners a flavor for, uh, frankly, the goodies that they're going to get um, in this book. And uh, let's let's start with the education principles. Give us some idea, uh, an overview of of what a what are the education principles that a first generation professional needs to understand. Well, I think you start with, you know, you you want to make sure you finish quickly. Um it it's very important, you know, if it's undergraduate, uh graduate education, professional schooling, you you have to finish quickly. Simply because every day, quite frankly, that you're in school longer than uh your anticipated date of graduation, uh you're losing money because you can't go out and earn a living. So you have to finish quickly. You want to make sure that you attend an institution that's the best that you can be admitted to, but ensure that you're attending for the least amount of money possible. And I think what many of your listeners will hear from these principles are a lot of common sense and practicality. But unfortunately, you know, as my grandma would say, common sense isn't common to everyone. And I'll put myself in, <laughs> you know, I'll put myself in that bucket, you know. And that's the challenge of being a first-generation professional. Th- these principles are not intuitive uh, to many because they they just they don't know. No one else has been down that path to tell them. So, I, I would say finish quickly for the least amount of money at the best program. Now, on to professional principles. As a professional, I would say, again, a threefold approach of, you know, focusing on your performance. It always starts with good work. So you want to make sure that you're focused on doing quality work 
every chance you get. I mean, uh, no less than 100% effort, making sure that, you know, it's thoroughly done, it's well, you know, uh, delivered. You want to make sure your performance is extremely well done. Then you want to focus on your image. Um, Are you projecting a professional image, you know, whether it be in your appearance or your communication? You want to ensure that the work product that you've delivered matches the person delivering the work product. Then finally, you want to ensure that your work is known. You know, I think I read recently, you know, it used to be said that it's not what you know, it's who you know, but unfortunately in this environment, um, you know, the recent uh, Great Recession, it's who knows you. So I think it's critical (laughs) that individuals really focus on who knows you, who knows the work you're doing, who knows that, you know, you dress professionally and you communicate professionally. I think it's key for young professionals to understand that those components are all coming into play when others are deciding your professional success. Well, you know, that is such an interesting thing because, you know, I am a I'm 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 a black woman. Yeah. And I work in an environment where, you know, it's it's my organization is a British owned company, so our parent our headquarters are in the UK. Yeah. And what that means is that at the head of my organization there are uh more than in your certainly more than in your average American organization, there are many British white Meh. Yeah. And part of the question of looking professional then becomes a question because I will never look like that. <laughs> yeah. 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 And so the question is a little more complex because then you start having to figure out how do I exude that same level of professionalism without giving up my own style and my own sense of who I am. Yes, that's right. And there is a trick to that because there are, you know, more and less conservative ways to express yourself, even even if they're all professional. And so it's 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 a bit of a trick to find yeah. just that right place where you feel comfortable with, you know, your appearance, and you're projecting yourself in a way that people are around you also are feeling like, yes, I can envision, and it's not so much a question of, gee, do I like that dress as much as it is, can I envision Speedway in a role that is a step above where she is today? And it, it all comes down to what is that mindset and what is that impression that you leave and um so that's that's the thing that you know that strikes me because I just you know I'm, we're at the end of our fiscal year going into the new fiscal year, and part of the the question for me is, am I exuding the right image, and do I want to tweak it or change it or um move it perhaps even towards a more conservative style well i I love the point you made, Speedway, that it's not only your current image but the image for the role that you aspire to. So I think it's key that listeners don't um, forget that there's a second portion to the equation. It's not only looking and acting professionally now, but looking and acting professionally in the context of the role that you want to be in in the near future or even you know, many years down the road. Now this takes us to the you know, very important uh piece of our discussion, which is the financial principles. Talk to us about that. Yes, this is another uh, set of principles that, again, they're very easy to grasp, very easy to understand, but, you know, somewhat of a challenge to implement. Um, For the listeners, you want to ensure that you're living beneath your means and that you're purchasing assets instead of liabilities. And that that's really it. Now, the challenge is understanding what an asset is versus a liability. Um, you know, many, you know, experts will tell you it's quite frankly purchasing items that appreciate in value and that have, you know, a liquid market in the event you need to dispose of the asset. Um, the reason why I think it's so important, I think many of us, again, if you're a first-generation professional, you may not understand that even though your car may be viewed as an asset for 
you know, whatever loan you're going to apply for. In the real world, if you're looking to liquidate that asset right away, uh, it's a depreciating asset. It very rarely will be worth more than what you paid for it uh, several years after you made the purchase. So just getting in the mindset of acquiring things that appreciate in value and ensuring that whatever you take home, if it's on a weekly, biweekly, monthly basis, at the end of all of your expenses, you know, paying your rent, paying, you know, for whatever other items, groceries, utilities, that you have some excess left over that you can either begin to purchase those assets or to start building a nest egg, you know, saving, having an emergency fund, investments. I mean, that's where you really start to see that financial growth and that financial prosperity and ultimately your financial success. Hmm. Well, um, when I bought my house, you know, I thought that was an asset. <laughs> but as it turned out, <laughs> it wasn't nearly the asset I thought. In yeah. fact, it turns out it was a bit of a liability given where the value of it has gone <laughs> over yeah. the past couple of years. Go figure. Unfortunately, um, many of us are, you know, see, you know, in that same boat. So now um, you have a chapter in your your book on work life balance. And this is always the challenge, isn't it? And and we've actually talked quite a bit about this. So, listeners, if you missed it, we had an interview on, on just, that was just focused on this topic with Dr. Eric Winston Walton on July the 31st. And we called it Relationship versus Career. Can they coexist? And he assured us, uh, he assured us that actually they can. And then when Keith came to the show, uh, and when he was talking about you know good is not enough, we talked about he talked about managing the chaos um, yeah. of life and work and 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 so now Al, what suggestions do you have on creating that very elusive work life balance? It, it, it certainly is elusive. I would say you you want to define and implement what that balance is for you. So the the definition of, you know, uh, interest outside of work, you know, understand, categorize, you know, qualify them. Just make sure you know specifically what that looks like for you. Then the next step is implementing it, just doing it. Um, so let's give some concrete examples. I mean, you want to make sure that you're saying no when appropriate, you know, so you're not overextending yourself. You want to make sure you're taking vacations. Um, you want to use, you know, whatever flexible work options your employer provides. And then finally, you just want to plan your play. You want to ensure that all of these great ideas you have for rest and relaxation are getting the same time and attention that you give to professional activities. So start putting on your calendar, you know, workout you know, 7.30 to 8.15, uh, you know, take a bath. And, again, we're not talking about for hygienic purposes. It, it may be something that's relaxing for you. You run the bubbles. You light some candles. Um, mm -hmm. You may listen to music. You know, whatever it may be, get it on the calendar. Make sure it's prominent in your life because, unfortunately, if you're not defining what that balance is and implementing it, someone will do it for you. And you may not like <laughs> what their what their uh, objectives are, what you know how they're prioritizing those things in your life. In your book, you have a call to action uh, of taking the sage pledge. Yes. What is the sage pledge? Well, you know, I I tend to view mentors as the equivalent of generations gone by, you know, the the wise individuals. You know, these were men and women, you know, teachers, um, instructors, leaders who would help the 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 younger generation uh reach their goals um through the 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 advice and wisdom and teaching that would be handed down by uh these more experienced persons. Those were, you know, every uh culture and religion has various titles for those individuals. Uh, and I quite frankly like the title sage, so went with that. Um, it does sound at, nice. 
I, I love it. I, I, I absolutely love it, Speedway. Um, but what what we do is we call the readers to really take a pledge from both sides of this equation. Earlier we talked about the mentor-mentee relationship. So the Sage Pledge breaks it down in those two buckets. We have for the ment for the mentee the pledge that they will uh, find someone who they aspire to be like, uh, seek out their wisdom and implement that wisdom, and then report uh, what has happened. Again, not in a, uh, a rigid or formulaic way, but just share uh, their progress with the individual who has uh, imparted that wisdom. And then for the mentor, we've asked that, uh, as a sage, that they identify at least one individual that they can invest in uh, truly invest in, champion, and advocate for that person and persist, stick with them until they accomplish their goals. Um, you may have caught the use of uh, pluralities and you know me saying we, uh, and it's because I think this is a collective activity. You know, all of us at some point we're in the, the mentee role and then we can flip quite easily to the mentor role. So it's not something that you do in a vacuum. It's not something that you do alone. You know, you want to make sure that uh, you're you're working within the community of, you know, like-minded individuals who are, you know, uh, on that same path, on that same journey, because we can't do it alone. Hmm. And so back to our conversation about mentors potentially being sort of frightened off by the potential time commitment of you know being a mentor. Yeah. Um, how do you find the say? How does that the, the sage pledge interplay with you know against the time constraints of the folks who might otherwise want to serve as sages? Well, hopefully, the first thing it does is it makes it concrete. You know, taking a pledge and again, it's it's not something that's going to be done uh, in a group setting. You know, so you don't have to stand in front of a bunch of people and raise your right hand. <laughs> I don't want uh, any mentors listening to be, uh, or prospective mentors listening to be uh, scared away by that thought. Um, but it, it, it makes uh, the process real. It, it makes it something that is concrete. It's defined. Uh, the mentor understands what's expected of them. And for those uh, who are able to visit either the website, alcolemanjr.com, or to view the book. The pledge is on there so you can take a look. Um, I think hopefully what will happen is uh, the sage will look at this, have a concrete understanding of what's expected of them, and also see that you know the two or three sentences that this call to action is made within isn't that challenging. There's no minimum requirements. You know, It's not asked that you meet with your mentee once a week or once a month, it's really up to you. It's a fluid, again, organic relationship. Um, You just commit that you will persist and that you will really invest and help this person reach their goals. Uh, And I think that level of accountability uh, is needed to ensure success on both sides. Excellent. Well, with that, that brings us to the end of our show. Al, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me, Speedway. It's been a pleasure, uh, and I look forward to speaking again. Well, listeners, the website is buzzing with chatter, so join the conversation, post your thoughts, post your comments, submit a request if you have ideas for shows. I think the most interesting comment I saw was, you know, some of your topics are kind of boring. You need to step it up a little bit. And I thought, well, that's interesting. What would you like to hear? So let us know what you would like to hear about, and we will cover those topics. Uh, visit thespeewayshow.com, and you can do that. You can also visit the Facebook fan page, facebook.com slash thespeewayshow, or follow us on Twitter, lots of ways to interact with the show. And at the end of today, hopefully what we have done is encouraged you to visit com and pick up your own copy of Secrets to Success. And uh, if you forget where to find it, no matter, just uh, go to thespeedwayshow.com and click on the box that has uh, 
that has this particular show, and it will take you to the full page with the write-up for the show, and you can also listen to this show on demand after it airs. And on that, you will find the link to Al's uh, website. So join us next week when our topic will be To Restless to Rest, Professionals Thrive on Work, and for all you workaholics out there, this is going to be for you. So thank you, and until next week, this is BUA saying, go in peace. Thank you for joining us on the Speedway Show. Until next time, live well, live fully, and love deeply.